Chapter Twenty Five of Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Craster. Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty by Imbert de Saint Amand. Translated by Elizabeth G. Martin. Chapter Twenty Five. The Last Days at the Tuileries. During one of the last nights of July, at one o'clock, Madame Campan was alone near the Queen's bed, when she heard someone walking softly in the adjoining corridor, which was ordinarily locked at both ends. Madame Campan summoned the valet de chambre, who went into the corridor. Presently the noise of two men fighting reached the ears of Marie Antoinette. "'What a position!' cried the unfortunate Queen. "'Insults by day and assassins by night!' The valet cried, "Madame." It is a scoundrel whom I know. I am holding him. Let him go, said the queen. Open the door for him. He came to assassinate me. He will be carried in triumph by the Jacobins tomorrow. People were constantly saying that the Faubourg Saint-Antoine was getting ready to march against the palace. Marie Antoinette was so badly guarded, and it was so easy to force an entrance to her apartment on the ground floor opposite the garden, that Madame de Tourzel, her children's governess begged her to sleep in the Dauphin's room on the first floor. The queen was averse to this step, as she was unwilling to have any one suspect her uneasiness. But Madame de Tourzel, having shown her that it would be easy to keep the secret of this change by using the Dauphin's private staircase, she ended by accepting the proposal so long as the trouble should last. She was so thoughtful of all those in her service that it cost her much to incommode them in the least. Finally, she consented to use the bed of the governess, and a pallet was laid for the latter every evening. Mademoiselle Pauline de Tourzel slept on a sofa in an adjoining closet. As no one in the house suspected that the queen might have changed her apartment for the night, Madame de Tourzel and her daughter took precautionary measures. When the queen had gone to bed, they arose, and after making sure that the doors were locked, they shot the inside bolts. The closet I occupied served as a passage for the royal family when they went to supper said mademoiselle de tourzel afterwards madame de berne in her souvenir de quarante ans i went to bed early sometimes i pretended to be asleep when the princess was passing through and i saw them approach my sofa one after another i heard their expressions of kindness and goodwill toward me and noticed what care they took not to disturb my slumber poor marie antoinette could any one believe that a queen of France would be reduced to keeping a little dog in her bedroom to warn her of the least noise in her apartment? The Dauphin, delighted to have his mother sleep so near him, used to run to her as soon as he awoke, and clasping her in his little arms would say the most affectionate things. This was the only moment of the day that brought her any consolation. By the end of July, both the queen and her children were obliged to give up walking in the garden. She had gone out to take the air with her daughter in the Dauphin's small parterre, at the extreme end of the Tuileries, close to the Place Louis XV. Some federates grossly insulted her. Four Swiss officers made their way through the crowd, and placing the queen and the young princess between them, brought them back to the palace. When they reached her apartments, Marie Antoinette thanked her defenders in the most affecting terms, but she never went out again. After June 20, the garden, excepting the terrace of the Fouillon, which, by a decree of the assembly, had become a part of its precincts, had been forbidden to the populace. Posters warned the people to remain on the terrace and not go down into the garden. The terrace was called National Ground, 
and the garden land of Koblenz. Inscriptions apprised passerbys of this novel topography. Tricolored ribbons had been tied to the banisters of the staircases by way of barriers. Placards were fastened at intervals to the trees bordering the terrace, whereon could be read, Citizens, respect yourselves. Give the force of bayonets to this feeble barrier. Citizens, do not go into this foreign land, this Koblenz, abode of corruption. The leaders had such an empire over the crowd that no one disobeyed. And yet it was the height of summer. The trees offered their verdant shade, and the king had withdrawn all his guards and opened every gate. Nobody dared infringe the revolutionary mandate. One young man, paying no attention, went down into the garden. Furious clamors broke out on all sides. To the lamppost with him, cried someone on the terrace. Thereupon the young man, taking off his shoes, drew out his handkerchief and began to wipe the dust from their souls. People cried bravo, and he was carried in triumph. Marie Antoinette could not become resigned to this hatred. Often she frightened her women by wishing to go out of the palace and address the people. Yes, she would cry, her voice trembling as she walked quickly to and fro in her chamber. Yes, I will say to them, Frenchmen, they have had the cruelty to persuade you that I do not love France, I, the wife of its king and the mother of a dauphin. Then, this brief moment of generous exaltation over, the illusion of being able to move a nation of insulters quickly vanished. Her life was a daily, hourly struggle. The wife, the mother, the queen, never ceased to contend against destiny. She hardly slept or ate, but from the very excess of danger she drew additional energy and moral and material force. As she awoke at daybreak, she required that the shutters should not be closed, so that her sleepless nights might be sooner consoled by the light of morning. The most widely diverse sentiments occupied her soul. A captive in her palace, she sometimes believed herself irrevocably condemned by fate, and sometimes hoped for deliverance. Toward the middle of one of the last nights preceding the 10th of August, the moon shone into her bedchamber. In a month, she said to Madame Campan, I shall not see that moon unless I am freed from my chains. But she was not freed from anxiety concerning all that might happen before that. The king is not a poltroon, she added. He has very great passive courage, but he is crushed by a false shame, a doubt of himself which arises from his education quite as much as from his character. He is afraid of commanding. He dreads above everything to speak to assemblages of men. He lives uneasily and like a child, under the eyes of Louis XV, until he was twenty, and this constraint has had an effect on his timidity. In our circumstances, a few clearly spoken words addressed to the Parisians who are devoted to us would immensely strengthen our party, but he will not say them. Then Marie Antoinette explained why she did not put herself forward more. For my part, said she, I could act and mount a horse if need were. But if I acted, it would put weapons into the hands of king's enemies. A general outcry would be raised in France against the Austrian woman, against female domination. Moreover, I should reduce the king to nothingness by showing myself. A queen who is not regent must in such circumstances remain inactive and prepare to die. The danger constantly increased. At four in the morning of one of the last days of July, warning was given at the palace that the faubourgs were threatening and would doubtless march against the Tuileries. Madame Campan went very softly into the Queen's room. For a wonder, Marie Antoinette was sleeping peacefully and profoundly. 
Madame Campan did not rouse her. You were right, said Louis Seize. It is good to see her take a little rest. Oh, her griefs redouble mine. At her waking, the queen, on being informed of what had passed, began to weep and said, Why was I not called? Madame Campan excused herself by saying, It was only a false alarm. Your majesty needed to repair your prostrate strength. It is not prostrate, quickly replied the courageous sovereign. Misfortune makes it all the greater. Elizabeth was with the king, and I was sleeping, I who wished to perish beside him. I am his wife. I am not willing that he should incur the least danger without me. On Saturday, August 5th, the last Sunday the royal family were to spend at the Tuileries, as they were going to the chapel to hear mass, half the national guards on duty cried, Long live the king. The other said, No, no, no king, down with the veto. The same day at Vespers the chanters had agreed to swell their tones greatly, and in a menacing way went reciting this versicle of the Magnifica, De poursuit pourtant de sed. He had put down the mighty from their seat. In their turn the royalists, after the dominum salvum fac regem, cried thrice, turning as they did so toward the queen, et reginam. There was a continual murmuring all through the divine office. Five days later, the same chapel was to be a pool of blood. And yet Madame Elizabeth, always calm and always angelic, still had illusions. One morning of this terrible month of August, while in her room, in the pavilion of Flora, she thought she heard someone humming her favorite air, Pauvre Jacques, beneath her windows. Attracted by this refrain, which in the midst of sorrow renewed the souvenir of happier times, she half opened her window and listened attentively. The words sung were not those of the ballad she loved, yet they were royalist in sentiment and adapted to the same air. The poor people had been substituted for poor Jacques, the poor people who were pitied for having a king no longer and for knowing nothing but wretchedness. Such marks of attachment consoled the virtuous princess and made her hope against all hope. She wrote, August 8th, to a friend, Madame de Raigecourt. They say that the king is going to be turned out of here somewhat forcibly and made to lodge in the Hôtel de Ville. They say that there will be a very strong movement to that effect in Paris. Do you believe it? For my part, I do not. I believe in rumours, but not in their resulting in anything. That is my profession of faith. For the rest, everything is perfectly quiet today. Yesterday passed in the same way, and I think this one will be like it. On August ninth, the eve of the fatal day, Madame Elizabeth again addressed a reassuring letter to one of her friends, Madame de Bombelle. Curiously enough, she dated this letter August 10th, no doubt by accident, and when Madame de Bombelle received it, she read these lines, which seemed like the irony of fate. This day of the 10th, which was to have been so exciting, so terrible, is as calm as possible. The assembly has decreed neither deposition nor suspension. End of chapter 25 Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.